0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Mastering Dungeons. I am Sean Merwin, here with the hopefully talkative Teos Abadia. Hey Teos, how was your week?
1: Hey, the week was good. I've got snow outside and uh, there are folks in my house helping to uh, electrify. We're we're switching from natural gas uh, furnace to an electric heater. So there may be some
0: noises in the background, you know. I feel like the West Coast and where I live on the uh, Eastern shore of Lake Erie has sort of switched. You guys get much more snow than we do, and we have like temperate we've been having temperate winters with very little snow but a lot of rain, so I feel like we've we've sort of transposed uh weather patterns
1: yeah, I mean even biomes uh you know we've been overwhelmed by swarms of monkeys here and lions, yeah. No, not that's, really. But, but I mean, that's, any day now, who knows? Yeah. At, all, at this point, yeah, anything could happen. Yeah, I mean, I don't could. know. I'm going to, you know, ride bears to school or something for my kids. Like, it, it's it's all just, it's, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. Nothing, uh, well, a lot of things, there are a lot of differences just between when I moved to Portland a little over a decade ago and now just the, the weather is so substantially different. So it's, yeah. yeah, it's something. I
0: mean, we had 80 mile an hour winds. Uh, and rain uh, you know, a few days ago that just took everything down i was so i'm lucky we have power and internet at this point so yeah so good times welcome to the new normal yeah but D continues as well which is a good which is a good thing for us so let's jump right into the news which is voluminous this week uh would you believe that the cover story for the Sports Illustrated NFL coverage is about D and D. Well, I would because that's what happened. Uh, they wrote a story about how several members of the Cleveland Browns are playing D and D. So it uh, you know it has some cool images of of uh, like a dragon like creature, and a football player over the sword and shield. That's and really it, cool. Yeah, it's, it's like an a, homage to the Red Box. Exactly. It does a great job of uh, the article does a great job of just you know. Saying everybody plays this game, including people that you might watch, you know, Sundays uh, playing football, and it's overall just good, good publicity, I think.
1: Yeah, well, and you, you know, when when we talked uh, uh, about the ghosts and uh, CBS show, mm-hmm. you know, you sort of mentioned like, ah, eh, there's sort of these tired tropes that that can't help but creep up, and this I thought did a spectacularly good job of acknowledging those stereotypes but then really facing it and saying hey you know these actual football players have had to convince people but once they did here's how awesome it is and the article you know a lot of times they'll say like oh D&D is fun for these people but they won't tell you why mm-hmm. and especially given this is Sports Illustrated it's sort of amazing to see that they'll put in these little blocks in the story right they're like story chunks yeah. of what their adventures are like that the the Cleveland players are going through
0: yeah Yep.
1: Really good stuff.
0: Yeah. And uh, for those of you who follow football, they're talking about Miles Garrett and uh, Wyatt Teller to Pro Bowl, all pro players, uh, as well as their DM who uh, is someone who is on the practice squad, but he's he's their DM. And uh, so, you know, it's just, it's, it's fun to hear about their game, but it's also you know, it's a story of finding the right people to game with, which we all know. Because if you're on the practice squad, there's a good chance that you might get grabbed up by another team and off you go, you know, to some other city. And uh so it's it's you know, it's interesting to to see that, hey, everybody has a hard time getting their group together, including NFL players.
1: I mean, you'd think they'd have it easier, but uh yeah, especially when they like they in t- one of the things they talk about, like the personal chef providing food.
0: Yeah. We we all don't have that uh, at our games, although yeah, we're we're working toward that. Our own uh, personal mastering dungeons chef. I also yeah, <laughs> that's
1: thanks for the Patreon.
0: It goes yeah. towards the personal <laughs> show.
1: Uh, did you see that comicbook.com said two of the Cleveland Browns' seven wins this season were because of a D and D player's touchdown.
0: That's right. That's right. So you know you know good on good on d d for continuing to not only attract players but to show that you know the the game is for everyone and to get a little business related now we're going to talk about kickstarter and they they now have plans to use blockchain technology starting in twenty twenty two and those plans have brought a Deserved backlash from the community, especially people who are in touch with what blockchain is and what it means to our environment.
1: I have learned a little too much about it recently, Sean. This is not a thing I wanted to do, but the real basic thing is that it's a way of encoding data into sort of blocks of it and you string them along. That's where the blockchain comes from. And the technology is, is made kind of most famous and most aware by the use of Bitcoin, mm-hmm. uh, which was a deliberate attempt to create a currency that would not be regulated. Right. We don't want that pesky, you know, did you do arms dealing stuff going on? Right. Let's just trade money. Um, and the whole point of it when it was engineered was if you make it so difficult to hack, but less difficult to be a part of this and authorize it, and you get paid for this validation portion, then people will validate it rather than hack it. Mm -hmm. And to do that, what it was is that as it became more valuable, it would be harder and require more energy to do this validation. And that's exactly what's happened. The energy consumption of Bitcoin has just skyrocketed according to plan to where it's now larger than mid-sized countries. It's something like seven times what Google uses energy-wise. So it's like 91 terawatt hours of electricity annually at a time when we're supposed to be fighting fighting climate change. Mm -hmm. Other blockchains aren't necessarily that bad, but they're kind of all energy-intensive by design. And you can sort of change up where the validation takes place. There's a lot of technical stuff you can look into. But what I couldn't find is any example of something where it's like, no, this is just great. I mean, there are some pie in the sky things or like only when you use solar energy for this blockchain, but realistically there's, it's just, it's energy consumption. And right. so what Kickstarter is planning to do is use this technology so that it can distribute uh, funding for, for, for a, a crowdsource project, distribute that anywhere so that it could be on your web page or in some other format and not necessarily that you have to go to the kickstarter site because i guess they are worried about some competition that's coming this way Mm -hmm. Um, and perhaps they're also trying to drum up investor excitement Mm -hmm. they make so much money right it's one of those things where you just wonder why companies can't just be happy with what they have but uh, so the the net of it is that they're trying to they're partnering with a company that would provide this blockchain technology and um, that company is currently m- mitigating through carbon mitigation about the equivalent of 2,850 flights from L.A. to Paris each year. That's the sort of carbon contribution that it's doing. So it has to compensate that through investing in forests and things like that. Uh, I have a close friend because I'm in the environmental field. I have one of the premier people on carbon mitigation uh, is one of my good friends. And th- the science is tricky. And right. what isn't tricky is spending energy. When we burn energy, that's 100% guaranteed you did it. Yep. Mitigation rests on a lot of agreements. Uh, it has very long time spans, and the science is always being refined. It's, it's, not, it's, a, it's a risky thing rather than a sure thing. Right. So carbon mitigation is never a positive. Right. It's like if I said, you know, hey, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to kick you in the face, but then I'm going to give you medicine.
0: I could right. also not kick you in the face. Right. <laughs> right. The, the not kicking in the face... <laughs> is generally preferred to the kicking in the face and hopefully the medicine will take away the pain that you're still feeling right uh, yeah exactly but what if we
1: didn't what if we did something good instead right. um, so you know you can write kickstarter uh, and tell them what you think i've given a, a link to their help page you will be forced to contend with a wrestle an automated bot and then say no i really really want to send a message and then you can send a message um, you can also read about it. Dicebreaker.com had a pretty decent breakdown of what the blockchain crypto, crypto angle looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see. We're, I think we're all hopeful that Kickstarter will avert this. You know, I'm personally not planning on backing anything as much as I love my friends who do things on Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Um, I will not be backing this until I hear from them uh, that hopefully they're changing their plans.
0: Cool. Soon. We've been covering all the news in D&D job-related uh, news, and lo and behold, another job has popped up. You can design D&D products as they are hiring a D&D game designer. Um, so this isn't a senior designer. It's not an associate designer. It is designer. Uh, so in that sense, they are requiring three-plus years of RPG product design, they don't give a salary listed, but based on other news that we've heard and covered, we're assuming that it's in the 70,000K 70, plus, seven, 70,000 plus, <laughs> not 70,000K plus, because that would be a lot of money, uh, but you know, in the, in the 70K area or higher. Um, and they've also added a lead gameplay designer for the digital team. Uh, So we have links in the show notes, or you can just go to the Wizards website and click on careers and find that information.
1: Yeah, um, good to see these jobs. Exciting. Uh, The lead gameplay designer is, again, another show showing or another indication that the digital team is growing. That's that's also very interesting. Yep, A lot of staff added recently, right? I mean, a lot when when you add it all up.
0: And it's from what I've heard, they need that staff because the staff that they currently have is working a lot of uh, hours.
1: Yeah, though, I will say one of the things I want I look at when I look at the health of D&D is are people being promoted, right? Mm-hmm. Not just bringing in new people, but see some people promoted. They've clearly hired great people. So I'm not I'm not, you know, no issues there. Uh, folks like Amanda Hammond coming in. Right. I mean, people who are mm-hmm. clearly talented, um, but, uh, but I would also love to see that people rise, mm-hmm. uh, regularly there. So exactly.
0: we'll see that. Yep. Uh, there was a new studio blog that contained a sage advice, uh, section and boy, are my arms tired just scrolling <laughs> through it. Uh, so we're going to give you some of the highlights. Uh, the first thing they did was revise some drow lore and the player's handbook is updated to reflect that new lore so that yeah to sum it up they're getting away from the sort of all drow revere louth and she is the you know she is the head of everything they do and they're they're more focusing on the idea that they're from underground the drow so they are more in tune with shadows and light and darkness and um they now say that, as, you know, as a drow, your kin tend to have white hair and grayish skin tones of many hues.
1: Um, Which is a, a really, it's a
0: clever way to change it up. Yep. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, that's, that's good. Yep. And, you know, they, they talk about how Louth has has corrupted some of the cities, especially on Oarth and Toril. Um, Aberon, Kryn and other realms have escaped their influence for now, uh, for now, because they may spread the drow around. Uh, so, th- you know, the Louth, Louth worship is now more a cult than a regular thing. And there are drow heroes who are fighting against that uh, that evil of Louth's yeah. web
1: you know, reading this, it occurred to me, I had a couple of thoughts. One is that this, this um, feels almost like they've taken another iterative step beyond what we reported on not too long ago, where they sort of were talking about the new Ari Salvatore novel, and they were talking about these additional drow places. And sort of initially, it felt like it was like, oh, there's Menza Bronson and, and the influence of Lolth, but then there are these other areas where drow are different. And it's almost like they've now switched that to say, there's this cult that's hurting some drow, mm-hmm. but here's what drow actually are, which I like a lot better. Right. I think this, this new rewriting is even better. The second thing I, I, I kind of laugh at, and, and I can't entirely blame him, maybe, maybe I'd even be for it but, it, but it strikes me, is staff always act like nothing has changed. Right, like, like it's always like our fault, like we didn't get it, right? How did we not get it, Sean? You and I, (laughs) that this is what the reality was. Um, Like they say, "quote This new text replaces a description that confused the culture of Menzilbaranzin, a city in the grip of cult and forgotten realms, with Drow themselves." Uh, No, there was no
0: confusion. You were pretty clear about it. Yeah. Now you've fixed it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. There's a whole book about it at the end of fourth edition. And, in
1: every edition, we have right. a book about drought culture, and it's really
0: clear. And, and not only um, in games, but in novels and in video games. Yeah,
1: video games, games, any of it. Um and, and then they're saying, you know, drow are united by an ancestral connection to the Underdark, not by worship of Lolth, a god some of them have never heard of. It's like, really never heard of? Like, yeah. okay, like, wow, that is – don't tell me that I misread that. Like that's Right, a, right. You know,
0: yeah. Yeah. That wasn't confusing text. This is a no. change.
1: And that's fine. But right. I
0: just feel like we could call it what it is. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, you know, you've already said, like, on the DMs Guild for those older products, this stuff – is problematic it wasn't right then and it's not right now but we're going to put it out there we don't want to you know wash over the history of it we want to to own what we did and move forward yeah so let's just stick that's the
1: thing that sometimes when we try to do things in fiction it can avoid owning responsibility and i think maybe that's what i'm reacting to and it brings to mind there was an article uh owen wilson who is a freelancer and creator, and he often freelances with Paizo, Mm -hmm. Um, he posted a blog article that was written by someone else who anonymously wanted to see this written that was basically saying, Paizo, you've done wrong with your treatment of the subject of slavery Mm -hmm. and went into many details of why it's problematic. And and a lot of it was that they tried to sort of, in fiction, had... Pathfinder society, fight slavery and sort of free people. But then because it was in products, it sort of kept being there and and basically placing all this culpability uh, on Eric Mona, who had recently written a book that then had all of these ideas in it, even though theoretically all of this has tried to be undone in fiction. And Eric Mona wrote back to the blog uh, yesterday and said, yes, our bad we should really stop doing this in fiction. We should own it and fix it, which right. was a pretty good response. And so yeah. I think that's a really interesting subject of how companies are trying to undo this. And I would definitely say, stop trying to do it in fiction. Like let's call it what it is and just, yeah. yep, or do both, but, but don't, don't right. just pretend like it's always been just fine.
0: Yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Get, you know, Laura's problematic. You don't need to fix it through fancy things. Just, own it, and move on. Yep. Uh, there were a lot of rules, uh, Q&A updates. So the first one, is a spell attack a spell? And the answer is no, it's a type of attack, not a spell. I'm kind of confused on that one.
1: So what? I think where this comes from is people were, were basically saying, you know, can I counter spell? these new sort of stat block changes. Gotcha. And their answer is sort of, well, this isn't really new. There've always been monsters that have spell attacks. And as we say in the monster manual, it's a type of attack, just like melee attack, there's spell attack, but that doesn't mean it's a spell. And it doesn't mean that, you know, dispel magic or anything else, like anti-magic field, like none of that is inherently applied to this because it's
0: just a type of attack. Gotcha. Cool. As soon as you said monsters, that made total sense. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Next question, when a monster casts a spell without using spell slots, how do I know the spell's level? And the answer is, it's specified in the description. Um, So if they can cast a fireball, that's a third level spell, unless you have spell slots that will allow you to increase the spell's level by expending a higher level spell slot, then it's a third level spell slot. Makes sense. Yep. Yep. Uh, Yeah, talk about the Silvery Barb spell. So, it, it's all the rage.
1: This new spell that appears in Strixhaven, um, I'm sure we'll touch on it when we talk about Strixhaven, but it, it has been all around the internet causing excitement and, and anger and whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, it's that kind of thing, which always tells you if it causes that level of excitement, maybe it's a little bit yeah. too strong. Um, there are many things, but just what they basically said here, what they addressed was the concern around boss monsters, and they said, can the Silvery Barb spell, which causes you to reroll?" Affect legendary resistance. And it says, no. When a creature uses legendary resistance, the creature turns a failed saving throw into a success regardless of the number rolled on the d20. Forcing that creature to re-roll d20 afterward doesn't change the fact that the save succeeded as a result of legendary resistance. No mm-hmm. amount of re-rolling will undo that success. I find that super interesting. Mm-hmm. Because there are a number of features that suggest, you know, that hey, you could reroll a success and end up with a
0: failure. I see. So, so, th- so, so the spell says if someone succeeds on a saving throw, you can make them reroll. And yeah. the people were saying, well, if they use a legendary resistance uh, to succeed, right. does, does that overwrite that? And the answer is no.
1: Okay. Yeah, and the answer is no. And in this specific case, it's a big problem because it's such a low level spell that you could just every round burn another legendary resistance and before you know it legendary resistance becomes useless right so in this very specific it's a very specific problem due to this spell and you know but we get a no that also has a blanket sort of ruling here around legendary resistance which is interesting and we'll have to watch and see how that plays out for other situations but it suggests that a legendary resistance resistance just makes it save and you can then not undo it okay nothing else will undo it which is an interesting thing
0: uh, and Sage Advice Compendium was updated, but it only updated the file links. There were no actual new changes uh in the compendium itself.
1: Yeah, I think it's funny it it you know they have left in new tags, but they're right. from the version two point six, so you could almost apply errata to Sage Advice Compendium. So you're, it, those you those aren't
0: actually new. You can errata the errata. Yes. Excellent. We're getting real meta here. And there were nine books that were updated with Yeah, a few changes. Uh, I, I
1: mean, just to, to make this fast, a yeah. whole bunch of these changes are the removal of alignment,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: problematic references to peoples and cultures and creature types, Um cannibalism and sacrifice removed from Volos or orcs as underlings, all kinds of sections. There are some interesting things like Noorata for Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, which has those subjects. Um, you know, I thought that was very interesting, but maybe they just simply haven't gotten there. That could be something they're working on. Things around madness. So thing, uh, Tomb of Annihilation's Mad Monkey Fever is renamed to Blue Mist Fever. Um, some things that say things about madness will now just simply be psychic damage if it's a trap. Um, there are A lot of things around how the Uthgart formerly Barbarians, are now renamed to things like Nomads or Marauders or just Northlanders, Mm -hmm. depending on what the intent is. Like, are they evil? Then they might be Marauders. Are they just peoples? Then, you know, the removal of that Barbarian tag. Um, Spell casting changed to the new format with removal of spell slots and more this many times per day. We see that. Um, Tasha's has some things that are, um, the the range of the artificer's perfected armor decreased by five feet. I don't know why someone decided that was critical, but it went from 30 to 25 feet. So if you use perfected armor as an artificer, make a note of that, Hmm. um, repeating shot, this ties into our last show and something you said, Sean. So this is an artificer infusion and, uh, it's something also that was brought up by a friend of ours on Twitter. So this says that if the weapon lacks ammunition, it produces its own. That's the new piece that's added. The language that already existed was around um, uh, that it uh, it removes the loading property or, or re- any loading requirement. Right. And now it reads really a lot like the Dragon Wing Bow, mm-hmm. which we talked about last episode.
0: Right. Yeah, that that's interesting. And it looks like a lot of the other changes uh, are either very minor rules things. Or things that maybe a sensitivity reader would have picked up on yeah. um, if they had been employed during the creation of said product.
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is just you get excited because it's a cool change to find familiar. But then you're like, oh, it's really just rewarding. One yep. thing worth noting, Tales from the Yawning Portal, they had the uh, issue with the quality of a map. And if you look in the document, there's a link to where you can download a updated map or revised map. So you can just get that. Um, Everything else is pretty minor. Uh, you know, true resurrection clarifies it restores an undead to their non undead form. Mm-hmm. But everything else is pretty, pretty, um, yeah, minor. Um, and you can
0: check those files out through the link in our show notes. Cool. Thank you for summarizing that. Um, Roll Twenty is hiring a senior project manager for its product team. Uh, so they are looking for. Someone with experience driving high-impact initiatives. Love the corporate speak. Um, emphasis on prog- software projects with agile methodology. Been there, done that, have the scars. Um, the job listing says that Roll20 has more than 9 million players. And the salary range is between one hundred and 130,000 plus benefits.
1: That's um, fantastic.
0: Yeah, Absolutely um this you know that puts them in the range of actual software companies
1: yeah <laughs> well i
0: mean that- Absolutely. Right. And you and I, having worked in this
1: field, one of the things that's been really sad is in the past, you'd see a job that you'd say, oh, that's almost like a job that, you know, I have done or that, you know, I hire for or whatever. And then you look at the salary range and you're like, oh, that is not at all what this job should go for. so hats off to Roll20 for announcing the salary because that helps our industry and making it really reasonable for what it is.
0: Yep. So kudos Roll20 for Putting up these job postings and making them very clear and, and bringing, you know, the RPG type jobs into the 21st century.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, EN Publishing is hiring a part-time publishing administrator in the UK. It's a 10 hour a week job with flex, flex time up to 20 hours paid on a contractor rate of 18 pounds an hour, which is about 2375. Uh, an hour in dollars working remote based in the UK with flexible hours, a freelance contractor position.
1: Yeah, it's great. You know, in the past, this would have paid in actual pounds even in the
0: U S like just pounds of stuff. Yeah, exactly. pounds Bronx Or something. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So it's great to, uh, it's great to see that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a friend of the show, Richard Molina Weber is, uh, running a Academy of Adventures for kids age 11 through 15. And I know he's done this previously. So if you have children who are interested in this, you can register at academyofadventures.com. Uh, registration is open now for three spring sessions that run d and for kids and playing all the way up to level 10.
1: That's really cool that they go all the way to 10th level. I, yeah. I was impressed by that.
0: Yeah. You know, you'll see a lot of these things where you'll play and you just play with first level characters for a long time. But this actually, yeah. you know, that's a significant, that's probably more than most campaigns I play in getting up to level 10. I mean, what
1: if I, if do you think if I wore like a mask and said I was 15,
0: that I could get away with joining? Probably. I don't okay. see why not. Uh, do you, is that, this is an online thing, Correct. Yeah, it's online. Okay. So, you know, anywhere in the world that you live, you could uh you could sign up a kid age 11 to 15 to to do that. Uh Dean Spencer, a well-known artist who sells art on drive-through and via Patreon, is offering free stock art. Uh he's offering a free piece of stock art each day, like an advent calendar for creators. Uh, you can follow Dean on Twitter. And the links will lead to a pay-what-you-want version of his normal for-sale art. Uh, You can also enter zero and give him a tip, and he definitely deserves such a thing.
1: Yeah, very cool. Neat to see, and actually seems like, to me, a very smart way to promote uh, his work. It's
0: very cool. Um, Yep. Beelan Grimm is creating a Magic the Gathering Platinum and Silver Edition. So you know we've we've talked about Beetle and Grimm's before. Some amazing products that they've put out in support, not only for D and D but for Fath- for Pathfinder, Critical Role, and now for Magic: The Gathering. You want to? That's tell us a, more?
1: really impressive. I mean, it sort of speaks to how good a job they've done that Wizards of the Coast would entrust them with that because they, you know, they're they're touchy around growing mm-hmm. relationships like this, and so it. it They've clearly impressed Wizards of the Coast, and it'll be interesting to see what they do. This new set is uh, Kamigawa is the setting, uh, which is like a, a Japanese culture uh, setting and now advanced to sort of a cyberpunk era. Mm-hmm. So we don't know really much about the setting or much about what's going to be offered, but it'll be very interesting to see. Okay.
0: Uh, Kids, next mini set, this is our Minis with Teo section. Uh, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft is going to be their next mini set. So tell us yeah, about that. Yeah,
1: sometimes they do this, right, where they go back in time. Um, and so this will be their typical blind collectible mini set. Um, I see that they have an undead purple worm called Drinker, which is a, a di- both a different pose than their super awesome premium purple worm. Uh, and a different color. It's sort of this ash gray, so very cool looking. That's a premium mini um there are some really neat minis that are inside the set that you can see if you go to the official WizKids cage page and as before they've done another ultra expensive 700 or yeah 7 788 one of everything box that where you get one of every mini that's in the blind box each premium mini, the five promotional minis, which drive me wall, up the wall, yeah. and even more drives me up the wall, the two special minis that only exist if you do this, which are Rudolf Van Richten and Esmeralda Davener. Uh Yeah, and so <laughs> just, you know, if anybody wants to send me $788 and or a Driz statue, I will uh, check this out and report on it
0: fully. There you go. <laughs> Oracle of War has released its final epic. That's Epic number four, it's now out. Uh, In this event, the Lamanian Triune hurls the adventurers back in time to unlock the hidden secrets of the Oracle of War. In the blasted mud of the Siren front line, the adventurers confront old enemies and new foes in a desperate mission to acquire the Oracle's Arcane Codex before the Rift pulls them back to the future. So this is a level 20 epic. Wow. Yeah. Um,
1: 20 epic is pretty epic
0: and so if you don't want to run it as an epic with multiple tables you can just get it for a single table event as well and this means that there is only one adventure left in the oracle of war campaign that started feels like 20 years ago even though it was probably (laughs) two Um, the grand finale will be released very soon and that will be episode 20 Um, if you have taken part in this campaign thank you first of all Um, since I worked on it at the start, but, uh, lead admin will Doyle asks that if you have played any of those adventures, please, please, please go back and leave a review or a rating as it helps the program. It helps not only make future, uh, adventures better. It helps make future campaigns better and lets wizards know, you know, what you want in a campaign. So if you could do that, that would be marvelous very
1: cool i love love. the campaign one of my favorites
0: yep i i have enjoyed you know running it helping out with it writing for it so much and i would love to see more campaigns like it uh so we made it through the news i didn't know if we would but by golly we did (laughs) and now we are getting on to our main topic which is guess what Fizzband's treasury of dragons part four Last week, we finished off Chapter 2. We talked about the new magic items. So now we are going to jump into Chapter 3 called Dragons in Play. Uh, Chapter 3 talks about more on the DM side of things, more about using dragons in your adventures, using dragons in your campaigns, how to role-play them properly, how to make them interesting and um, utilize them uh, in your games. So let's break it right down. We will jump in first to the uh, first section, which is role-playing dragons. Uh, It starts with a table. Imagine that. Uh, Actually, four tables giving you some details about your dragon's appearance, mannerisms, some bonds that your dragons might have, and then flaws and secrets that your dragons might have. Any any pretty
1: neat thoughts? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think these are useful, right? Like it's things like um, it has sculpted horns or claws or coins or gems embedded in the hide. Um, It fills with the the tip of its tail. It, um, you know, uh, constantly twitches its tail or pounces on it like a cat. uh, Sharpens its claws or horns on nearby stone surfaces. All these sort of things. And then like bonds and so on. So these are all fun ways to do, uh, to, to come up with some concepts as as often as the case in this, these sections, I don't know that I'd ever roll. It's more like reading over them can provide yeah. some inspiration to remember to not just be dragon, but be a dragon that acts right. Here's, here's why this dragon is, is an individual and come up with that.
0: Yeah. It's especially useful. I think if you, um, if you have a lot of dragons in your campaign, This can be a good way to make your dragons different from one another. Like I would not use these tables if there was one dragon that was the main protagonist or antagonist or foe or villain. You know, I would want to make that myself to fit the story, but if you have several dragons and you're like, Oh boy, I want this dragon to be different from this dragon. These, these tables give you a lot of fodder to create, you know, individually unique dragons.
1: Yeah, and a, a parallel is if you look in Wild Beyond the Witchlight that, that has a number of hags, each one has different fears, different ideas around how to relate with people around them. And that's the kind of thing that you can do if you have more than one dragon to make them really distinctive. Just look at what Wild Beyond the Witchlight does with their hags, and that's a, go.
0: a good model. The next section is how to name your dragon, which which is, you know, any names are hard. Dragons can be, can be terribly hard. Uh, So they give you some examples of dragons. They tell you that many dragons have these long and convoluted names, but then they will take a nickname or an epithet. So like Clouth is called old snarl and Kelandross is uh, called sky or storm over Kryn. And the, again, last is business is icing death. Uh, You know, so it's, It's And and I like this because it delves down into, you know, when you're running your game, this is something that comes up. This is something that players might trip over. And if you don't give them something, A, they can pronounce or B, a nickname that they can remember, the names sort of turn into a joke. And there are times when you want a jokey name. Because it, it brings some joy to the players. But if you're like, if you put this dragon up as the main foe of the campaign, and this is the whole point of you are trying to stop this dragon from doing whatever it's going to do. If the name becomes sort of a joke, you lose that drama a bit.
1: Yeah, and it's funny because they have a picture here of Cloguliamatar, which is known as Old Nabone. And that's, that's the g- great dr- green dragon that lives in Garden Forest in the Forgotten Realms. And I had to write a project mm-hmm. uh, around that. And the number of times I had to write cloggy Lyomitar <laughs> m- means that I actually am probably one of the few people on the planet who can reliably spell it because I had to do it so, so often. But you just can't expect that out of people. And so it right. has this great lore that it likes to fly around sort of chewing on a corpse. Yeah. And and that's where it gets its old nah bones, or she gets her old gnawbones um reputation, right? And 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 yeah. that's a great way to do it too. If if the nickname is something that that is sort of fearsome and
0: yeah. vile, right? That's neat. Yep, that is great. And then they give you a table that will allow you to create a dragon name using a D twenty and a D four. Uh, so so they give you uh morphemes like small syllables or or components of a longer name. So you can roll the D20 and then roll the D4 to get a table of 80 different um, of these, of these morphemes. So like if I let, let, let's, let's do one now, Teos um, pick a number one to four. Three. I'll pick a number one to 20. 15. All right. So we have Thal T H A L. Now I'll do nine and three jar. So we have Thaljar, go ahead, give me another one. Uh, Nine and two. Thaljar Ilium, and then 14 and one. Thaljar Iliumrith. There you go. Not too bad. And that fits with names that we've heard coming out of D&D books and D&D lore. So, you know, you can just roll some dice and, and make up a name.
1: Yeah, they don't always super go together, which is you know. But I, I guess the idea is there, and and uh, and, and I guess the they're, they're, I think they're trying to walk both worlds, right? Like one foot in the land of make it simple, one right. foot in the. But if you want to, you could try to force these to string yeah. together. And yeah,
0: um,
1: I, I I do sort of like dragon names being absurdly complicated because right. something should be a little alien, and it and it separates people from some from dragon so i actually like that combo i like the idea of having something complicated like cloggy Liamatar and then having old knob nah bones as the thing we might use at the table yeah. that's a good combination because it, it underscores those things yep um you can also look in dragon magazine number 260 owen KC stevens wrote a D dragon name generator that's similar but different mm,
0: there you go uh the next section is called customizing dragons And I think that this section is probably my favorite of this whole chapter uh, because it's incredibly important when you're running a campaign and when you're running encounters to do do two things simultaneously. Make the players and their characters feel like your world is real. And when the world is real, there are some things that are true about it. So there are some things that they can rely on. Green dragons, they're going to breathe poison. Black dragons, they're going to breathe acid. You know, things that are set, things that that you know and make make your world seem, make the fantasy real. Then you also want there to be surprises. And so you don't want when the black dragon swoops down, the players to say, well, the breath weapon is going to be in a cone of 30 feet. And we know this and we know that and we know what their skills are and we know what their you know, languages are, all those things. So having the ability and the permission from the rules to customize these dragons, for me, is hugely important. Yeah,
1: agreed. And that permission from the rules is, is a big thing because while we all know that we can do whatever we want, we can sometimes forget that. And there are a good number of DMs that I think are not sure. that They think they'll think it'll be a bad DM if they change it up. Right. Or players may even react that way and say, you know, wait a minute. You know, that's right. not what I'm expecting. And yeah, it says right here, it's okay for me to surprise you.
0: Right, exactly. And with that surprise then comes knowledge that can be used later. So if you can, as the DM, change things, but then instruct and inform the, the characters in, in this that next time they will be more prepared for the spell that this dragon can cast that no one knew. So the first thing they talk about customizing are language skills uh, and spells. You know, language makes sense. They're going to speak Draconic, but they learn common early. They're intelligent. Uh, you know, Most dragons have a very high intelligence and a long lifespan, giving them lots of time to learn additional languages. Um, so add languages to the dragon stat block fair enough um skills perception and stealth are not just what dragons are most proficient in but probably the two most important uh skills in the game right perception is something that you're constantly looking at to find danger stealth is something that a lot of uh characters use to try to get a, get around certain obstacles um so dragons can have other not only skill proficiencies but tool proficiencies especially if they um, spend any time in humanoid form
1: and i like this they have an other traits and actions section where they say you can borrow from other monsters uh, to make the dragons be interesting Uh, and there's some really neat ideas here. Some are obvious, like change shape. So normally it's uh, the stat blocks of like adult dragons will have the ability to to shapeshift, but um, you can give them that ability at any age, mm-hmm. just if it fits the story, which is great. Um, damage absorption is sort of fun. So like you could say, hey, my red or gold dragon isn't affected by fire. And so I can look at the flesh golem and use that trait that it has. Right. So um, in other
0: words, not only are they immune to it, they're actually healed by it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Actually healed by it. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And fly by. Uh, so you could look at some of the different monsters. Uh, Periton has it and, and uh, some of the beasts have the ability to fly by without attack. That's pretty dangerous on a dragon. Like the dragon can swoop in and attack you and not get hit. Right. Oof, it's only down to ready actions. Right. Yep. Um Mimicry is a great one. So I always think of the movie Predator, right? If you can like call out to people. I mean, that's great to give something like a green or black dragon that could be hiding behind clouds of gas or acid and use their own voices on the party to taunt them. That's wonderful.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, rejuvenation is another good one. If you think of the Lich and you know its ability to hide its soul. So you can defeat the Lich, but it will be reborn later if you can do that with a dragon not just an undead dragon but an actual dragon where its essence might be um, on a different plane right going with that idea that a dragon exists in many different planes at the same time Um, or just the fact that maybe it's it's essence it resides in its offspring as well and its offspring can bring it back by giving up little parts of themselves you know you can do some really cool mm-hmm. things so the only way to actually kill the dragon is to find out where its essence is being held and de- dealing with that we do that in with some monsters in the uh, monster grimoire from ghostfire gaming nice. where you can defeat this horrible beast but You know, you're going to go back, you're going to celebrate, and a week later, the town is going to face the same threats, and you're going to wonder what happened. Well, you're going to have to do some exploration, and then once you figure out how to do it, you're going to have to take some pretty extreme steps in order to defeat it once and for all.
1: Awesome. Yeah, so they also have special senses you can give or uh, giving the ability to burrow as examples, but Mm -hmm. I think this is just a nice starting off point.
0: Yeah, you you could do so many other things. And we didn't even talk about spells, which can be a very powerful uh, tool for you to not only challenge your party, but to give dragons the... Uh, let me Let me rephrase that by saying that if dragons are like the progenitors of the entire world, then magic is going to be something that they would have to be proficient with. So giving right. them the spells that they can use, uh, you know, whether in their everyday life or during combat only is hugely important and can turn what would would normally be a pretty easy combat into something much different.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there are even some stories like in Greyhawk that the elves stole magic from dragons, right? So it's just, yeah, it makes sense to give them the ability to cast spells. And I dragons have changed over the editions, you know, sometimes you could just beat them up like AD&D you could pre- they were both brutal, but you could, you know, surround them and beat them up and take their lunch. Uh and then 3rd edition I just remember is just any dragon could do horrible things to you and it was right. almost always an epic battle and and very challenging if you couldn't fly to get up to them if they were outside. Uh, things like their wing buffet you know like a, a white dragon would just blind you with its wings mm-hmm. picking up debris and stuff and yeah so the more you bring that in the more amazing they become and and that's what you want i think out of a dragon fight is it, it should not feel normal it should feel right you know like a heightened experience
0: yeah starting in third edition when they when they went to like the wormling young sort of age category things it was cool in the sense that then low level characters could fight dragons which it's called dungeons and dragons as we've said so you know you you want that but it also took away some of that mystery some of that uh power that you felt the the thrill you felt when you fought the dragon it's like oh yeah we did we beat a dragon when we were first level
1: yeah it was or only a three wormling.
0: three blue you right. Know, younglings it, right it, wormling it, yep and, and so, yeah, you know, I like to think of dragons as this, even if you're fighting them at low level, it's, go, it's got to be an epic sort of fight, and they, they have to, I want it to, to be more than one battle, right? They're going to, dragons can fly pretty fast, they're going to fly away, um, and you're going to have to deal with them later. And that actually brings us into the next section, which is Lifespan. And this is sort of the cool thing, but also a problematic thing in D and D is that the long lifespan of dragons, uh, means that if you are dealing with a wormling, that will always be a wormling, practically <laughs> during, yeah. during your campaign. Because as, as we've tended to, uh, level faster since AD and D years, um, you know you could have a whole campaign that takes place in the same year. Uh, so wormlings are always going to be wormlings. They even if they age you know one to five, okay, maybe you can then consider it young if you if your campaign lasts a couple of years. But from young age six to one hundred, that young dragon's always going to be young. The adult dragon's always going to be adult and so on. So there there's it makes it difficult to Have the same dragon be a threat all the way through, unless the threat is in the distance, and you will then work your way up to that threat. Um, But you're not going to see, you know, if I was an ancient dragon and I saw these semi-powerful characters doing things in my realm that I didn't like, I would just be like, okay, you're dead. Uh, You're never (laughs) going to get there. So the exterminate anyone that travels in a group of six exactly that has swords. (laughs) Uh, or armor so yeah it's but so it's one thing that you just kind of have to be aware of when you use dragons as the as antagonists or protagonists or ally or anything in in your campaign that this aging uh and this sort of the same for elves right it's like you you want to set this happened 300 years ago well there could be elves that were like yeah i remember that so it's yeah. it makes it hard to tell stories that we would normally tell in in fantasy where oh, everyone's human
1: and I think this a lot of words are spent in this section trying to tell us here's what a different age dragon has as possible typical goals, and while I think that's fine to sort of distinguish it. I feel like this is more words than we needed for the value of it because of what you're saying. Because at the end of the day, I've got a campaign and I want my dragon to play a particular role. And this can just be a small thing that I look at and consider, but it's still like, you know, the larger thing is what I think comes later around ideas for dragon campaigns. So I don't know. I found this was of, of limited use. And sort of just a lot of words for, for just the idea that, hey, dragons, as they age, their territory increases, yeah. their outlook on other creatures in the area changes, and they, you know, want slightly different goals in terms of what goes in their treasure hoard. I don't know that we needed this many words for it and tables yeah. and so on.
0: Yeah, I, di- I didn't mind that they did it to just sort of set set the the norm. Now, and this is how it could be. This would make sense. But then as you in your campaign change things, you know, move out from this as its as its starting point.
1: So Uh, Sean, yeah. The next section, could you tell me what happens when a father dragon and a mother dragon love each other very, very much? Well, I Uh, guess we're talking about dragons too. So really any two gender dragons love each other very, very
0: much. Uh what happens? Well, sometimes, uh on some worlds. Dragon reproduction covers a wide range of possibilities, <laughs> uh, and there's a table that tells us all about it, uh, from spontaneous reincarnation mm. to uh, con- to uh, procreation by consuming treasure. Oh, yeah. that's what I do. I mean, wait, yeah. sorry, that's, I get that's, personal there. Yeah, two two parts. It's why Genesis. I collect minis. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Chaos eats plastic. <laughs> Yeah, I mean parthenogenesis, right? Uh, whenever it feels ready to to re- rear some wormlings, boom, there you go. Uh, divine origin. Only Bahamut and Tiamat can create dragon eggs. You know, divine intervention is what causes it. And, are any of these actual sex? Uh, depending on your religion, yeah.
1: Uh, I don't think any of these are sex.
0: Let's see. Maybe that's just
1: so they can do the artwork without having uh, that's true. U- units on them.
0: No, let's see. Consuming treasure, magical crafting, draconic transformation, divine origin, spontaneous huh. formation. No, dragon yeah, conclave. Right. Uh, they Dragons each give up energy. I guess that's what we're getting to. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, yeah. It's it's. I, I like this idea though that fit fit your campaign with the story that you want uh the i'm going to be working on a ghostfire gaming project that is very heavy into dragon lore and we are going to have a completely new and different uh reproduction of dragons is a huge huge part of the campaign Mm -hmm. Um, and we're going to do something completely different from any of those things that are that are listed there so yeah you know, make it's it nice. fit your campaign and and have fun with it.
1: Very cool. Yeah, I agree and 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 maybe we'll talk about the context of this in when we get to the part that talks about krin which yeah. has that kind of idea too.
0: Yep. And then we get to we have dragon reproduction. Well, let's get to dragon death. Uh, so there's a table of six things that could happen when a dragon dies and it's uh you know Cool. Wild, you know, wild magic goes off. Uh, the dragon's body transforms into some element like stone, metal, lava. The surge of life energy erupts from the dragon, you know, causing uh, each creature within the vicinity to gain a benefit of a short or long rest. Uh, a portal appears where the echoes fr- from other worlds where the dragon exists uh, increases the, the power of of the dragons in those other areas sort of like a highlander but you're the same being and in the end there will be only one really really powerful dragon you know all sorts of fun things that you can do Uh, i think
1: the the only thing i have with this section is that it feels a little bit like, like well the important part to me is you must think of this way before the battle begins sure because these things are are pretty critical like if it uses its breath weapon one last time that is a big increase in power um and and so you've got to think about whether you want to maybe <laughs> tpk your party at the moment yeah. of the dragon dying um But also if it does things like open a portal and you see the body get sucked out for this Highlander thing, well, you know, that's going to lead to wanting to find those echoes. Is that what you want in your campaign? So you, you, you know, this is important to think through these, they're cool Mm -hmm. ideas, but you want to think about these early on, not, you know, the day that you're going to run the fight.
0: Exactly. This is about planning your campaign, planning your world. um, Not about doing it at the last second for sure. Uh, And now, most dragons of a certain age will have regional aspects, things that happen to the region, the area around it, because of its presence. And so what happens to the region when this dragon dies? Well, there's a little dragon reversal section or regional reversal section that talks about, you know, what happens to the foul water? When, when does it come back? Um, Creatures that have lost sleep or have trouble sleeping because of nightmares, when can they start sleeping normally again? You know, all of that stuff is, is discussed very briefly here. And then passing the mantle, what happens to this dragon's power and its, its possessions and everything? Well, the possessions probably get grabbed by the, the characters, knowing the characters. But, you know, think about it more in terms of this. This dragon is a sink, a power sink in the region. Something has to happen with that power you know who who takes on that power? does it taken up by another dragon uh, one of the dragon's kin um, other powerful beings in the area you know that that sort of thing is is discussed
1: yeah it's a bit strange um, I didn't super buy into this concept but but it's something fun to play with it's a it's a neat option to consider and again, if you're going to do something like that, you want to think through what You know, this would do. Like, um, is it that the real villain comes after you have defeated the dragon and uses the blood and the power within, uh, and you unwittingly cause that? And is there a way you can make that actually fun for the campaign, rather than feeling like wah ha? Or is it going to empower one of the characters for some reason? And why? You know, how would that be pleasing? So it almost creates it creates opportunities here, but you really there are things that you have to carefully weigh.
0: Mm -hmm. to make them fun for sure uh and then on death there are things called dracoliches in the world and not only do they exist but there are cults and necromancers who who their their sole purpose is to try to trick or persuade these dragons to enter these rituals that will turn them into undead creatures Uh, and so there are three kinds of draconic undead later in the book, uh, but they uh, they discuss them briefly here. Which is the hollow dragon, when a metallic dragon gives up its mortal life, so a fragment of life essence can linger as in a guardian. Uh, there's draconic shards that are psychic projections of psionic gem dragons, and then there are ghost dragons that that can exist. Uh, based on the information we're given in chapter six. Cool.
1: And we get a table of six possible undead dragon adventure hooks. Um, yeah. there's some neat ideas here.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, next are the echoes across the world section. And so this uh, ties into that connection to the history of the first world giving a link between dragons that exist across myriad worlds of the prime Material plane. And what happens because of this echo? Uh, any, any thoughts on that?
1: No, it's fine. I mean, it's just the idea of like, what are the two, in what ways are the two similar or different? So some ideas on that.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, the, there's a section on gods and religion. Of the dragons, now obviously Bahamut and Tiamat are the two most uh, notable, being the progenitors and creators of the first world. Uh, and then they, you know, go into the worlds where humanoids worship Bahamut and Tiamat. Uh, on Krin, they do so in their forms of Paladine and Tachisis. Otherwise. For, you know, from what I saw, this was just a, you know, things you can think about if you're going to use dragons as as gods. Yep. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have the shape shifting section, uh, which for me is is very interesting and very important, because you need to think about that when you uh, decide how you're going to use dragons in your campaign. Are dragons only going to be in their beast shapes? you know, their large flying uh, behemoth shapes or are they going to be able to turn into other things and interact with the characters and the story in different ways?
1: Yeah, and, and there are some interesting things like, you know, Crypt Garden Forest that we talked about with Cloguliamatar. Nearby is the home of this uh, noble family that I think come from either water deep, I think. And they, um, sort of their secret is that the... They have a silver dragon that is in humanoid form. Uh, I forget whether the idea is that it's still alive or passed away with the whole spell plague change. But that, that silver dragon has been around. And I think some of the, the family members are half dragons. Um, and that's, you know, so so by placing them in proximity there, there's sort of this cloggy is held in check by that family uh, that knows what's going on right and has this this secret tie and that's a fun way to do things in a campaign where you can use that shape-shifting as an ally or you can flip it around as they propose later and you can have things where the dragon the evil dragon is shape-shifting and acting as a crime boss or Mm -hmm. noble or whatever
0: yeah yep uh so then finally for just the section on the the uh the basically dragon characteristics our dragon organizations and we learn about some things that we've heard about in the past um, the cult of the dragon being the the first uh and foremost that was right there from the beginning in in the first hardcover adventure uh they 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 were founded in faerun based on a mistranslated prophecy that said dead dragons shall rule the world entire so this is why the Cult of the Dragon not only worships dragons and, and uh, takes part in plots with dragons, but tries to get them to embrace on death. Yeah, right. uh, you know,
1: <laughs> yeah, and then in Tyranny of Dragons, some, Severin, uh, this Cult of the Dragon member, decides that, hey, it's mistranslated. And the correct translation means, you know, bring Tiamat into the world, which is that whole plot. But that's been given to him basically by Tiamat. Right. And so the question is, what is the correct translation? Who knows? And I guess the, right. the current, what they're saying here, what they add to the lore is that in recent years, you have still the splinter of the Cult of the Dragons, some of which think bring back dracoliches. some of which say, uh, you know, live dragons. And the Neverwinter game, the MMO, which, you know, looks at all of this and does expressions of it, their next... Major module will be around this concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems to be a very FizzBands inspired area uh, that they'll add to the game. And they've done a sort of preview campaign that's all about the Cult of the Dragon trying to do things. And in it, they had an interesting thing where the Cult of the Dragon was trying to, and I, I think this is interesting because it speaks to dragon campaigns, right? And that's clearly what they're doing is a dragon focused campaign. Mm-hmm. So in this preview, the cult of the dragon was using a new interpretation of the prophecy, combined with what the Netherese had done—the mm-hmm. shadowvar with uh, using elements from from the plane of shadow, to basically transform a dragon not just into a Dracolich, but sort of a Shade Dracolich. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that was the interesting twist they're bringing in. So we'll see whether that ends up being at all in, in larger lore than just in the Neverwinter game. But uh, yeah. but it's pretty interesting development. Yeah,
0: it's I like the Cult of the Dragon as a concept for a campaign because one of the another problem with dragons is they're these very powerful creatures. And later, uh, either later today or maybe next episode, we'll talk about the follower section. And the problem with that is. You know, this powerful dragon would likely have a lot of followers, but unless you make the whole campaign about that, it it sort of gets out of step with, with your encounters, with your actual adventures, because you might not want to go through 150 followers to get to the dragon in one session. So you sort of have to make a larger part of the campaign about getting through all these followers to get to the dragon itself and the cult of the dragon sets that up for you nicely makes it a a very easy way to get that scope of the threat of the dragon down both in terms of story and in terms of the adventures that you play to tell that story
1: great point um So, then this this section on dragon organizations goes on to talk about the chamber, which is the Cabal of Dragons that's in Eberron. And I have to note that the art here is sort of interesting, and I'd noticed this before. This book uses art that's found in the Magic the Gathering card set. Uh, So, the card Bar the Gate is used here uh, to show the Cult of the Dragon, a Cult of the Dragon idea, which is kind of fun. And we see that throughout this book. so yeah, so the chamber is this cabal of dragons that are watching how the draconic prophecy is unfolding in the world of Eberron. And this ties into the way that the dragons originally created the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get some information on, on, on these uh, and potential hooks around working with uh, or against the chamber.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. And so they give adventure hooks about the chamber. And again, just because it's set in and Eberron, doesn't mean you can't pull it into any campaign, you know. Which is which is a, an interesting uh, concept that the dragons are not necessarily good or evil, but they are overseeing things as a whole. Uh, we also get a group called H- Hide Carved Dragons. Uh, they gather in communities of three to five called loths, not Louth's, <laughs> loths, loths. Uh, they share a common territory and horde live under a strict code of discipline and devote themselves to a common goal. But they carve arcane sigils into their scales for protection. I thought it was take sort of taking the rune, the like the dwarven rune magic to yeah. to a draconic level, which I thought was and cool. is this
1: something new I don't remember having seen I, these high carved dragons.
0: I I can't imagine that it's completely new, but I nothing in the lore that I'm familiar with of any world yeah. has uh, has brought this to my attention.
1: Yeah, if anybody knows of a place where these were referenced before, I'd be curious.
0: Yeah, and the final group is called Inheritors of the First World. Uh, so this goes back to that very first poem that we read at the beginning of our first episode covering fizzbands and they uh, believe that it has a that the cataclysm that destroyed the original creation and brought the worlds. Uh, many worlds into being can be undone so they're trying to bring all of these disparate worlds back together and making the first world whole again and what will happen if that happens that's a good question one for a full campaign and story to uh to unfold yeah that's pretty epic yep so that is the first section of chapter three and I, yeah, that's about now, Arteos. I think we've All right. we've done a yeah. due diligence. So we'll come back next time and continue uh, with chapter three, talking about many things like followers and dragon encounters, dragon adventures, and dragon campaigns. Sweet. I All look right. forward to that. So I want to thank everybody out there for listening. And I want to thank our patrons as well. If you would like to become a patron of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash MMP. Uh, Teos, where can people find your beautiful, beautiful words on social
1: media? Words beautiful and vile can be found on alphastream.org, where I recently examined uh, whether one can compete with Wizards of the Coast. Mm -hmm. Um, And if anybody can, who would it be and how does that all work? Uh, So that's all at alphastream.org. On Twitter, you can find me at alphastream. How about you, Sean? Uh,
0: You can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. You can find the podcast's Twitter feed at Mastering dnd. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. So now that we know more about our dragons and how to use them in the campaign, what are we going to do now?
1: We're going to join a bunch of NFL players in an epic campaign where we
0: take down all the dragons. Sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, Let no. me get my chef. Yeah, I, I got to get my cleats on.